from 11FS. I'm Jason Bates, and this is Fintech Insider News. This week, we bring you new banks $400 million mega round, pushing their valuation to over $10 billion. US women pay 18% more in banking fees than their male counterparts. And Noel Edmonds reaches a compensation deal with Lloyds over their scam. This and more on today's show. So, welcome to episode 345 of Fintech Insider. I'm Jason Bates, and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, 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 you are my colleague and co-host, <laughs> Simon Taylor. How's it going? I am Dorset. <laughs> <laughs> the Dorset Coast in particular. I'm very well. Been had a crazy week with clients and having a lot of fun. How are you? Uh, good. I'm tired. It's been like a super long day today, like just meeting after meeting. So I'm I'm hoping our amazing panel here are going to uh, are going to wake me up and and engage me in in amazing conversation. Fintech insights coming at you like Cleopatra. Yeah, I went there. <laughs> <laughs> Moving wow, we're cringing on. faces. <laughs> okay. As always, we're not alone, thankfully. Uh, we're joined by awesome guests, and we have making their new show debut, Mark Frampton, Analyst Relations Manager at Finastra. Hey, Hi. Mark. How are you doing? I'm well, I'm well. Excellent. And Greg Michel, Head of FinTech, Cybersecurity and AI at Tech Nation. Hello. And Greg's brought his, uh, his like, paper notes <laughs> with him, so uh, at, with, with handwriting on them. Yeah, I like to think of myself as a bit old-fashioned. Nice. Renaissance man, right? Nice. <laughs> and making an overdue return is Lois Ullerinshaw, Venture Principal at Nationwide Building Society. Hello. Thanks for having me back. Absolute pleasure. Welcome to the show. Great to have you all. Let's get started. So first up, article in Finextra, New Bank's $400 million mega round pushing their valuation to $10 billion. It seems that challenger banks are all the rage across the world, and Brazilian neobank New Bank has raised $400 million in its latest in, uh, investment round to date, valuing the six-year-old startup at $10 billion. So the company's now raised $820 million across seven venture rounds. Uh, I think that they've got something like 12 million uh, people on the, in their customer base in predominantly Brazil. And they've got offices, employ- uh, 1,700 employees in Brazil, Germany, Argentina, and Mexico. So what do we think about these telephone number valuations of challenger banks in Brazil? Is that 12 million people in Brazil um, of the customer base? Like, that's a lot of customers. But, I mean, Brazil's a massive market, so it makes sense. But, you know, SoftBank are, are a big investor and doing interesting things. Fintech's big, Greg. Fintech's really big. Um, I just looked at these numbers, 12 million people. Um, what immediately sprung to my mind is, well, what are then, you know, N26 and Monzo doing going, you know, in the U.S.? Who's just going to Brazil? You just you've seen the the, the sort of quantum of of uh, you know customers that you can get in in very little time. Um, you know, go there instead of doing fifty state license. Done. Yeah, so they're the sixth largest financial institution by clients in Brazil, which is remarkable, really, when you you look at how long they've been a, been around. No, absolutely. Um, I think what's what's really interesting is just the speed at which they're going. Mm-hmm. Um, it just shows that you know. But it's really challenging from from our point of view that the you know the view of the world kind of you know where we, we tend to be a bit insular you know it's the UK it's really great great things are happening and and then you see this sort of stuff and it's just wondering wow just what else are we missing 
Mark, what did you think about this? I mean, Newbank are backed by Tencent, which actually puts it in competition with SoftBank. Um, Tencent, having done well in emerging markets before, this is a very different story to what we're used to seeing, as I think, as Greg said, about uh, with, with some of the more, you know, the N26s and the monsters of the world. It is, and it's surprising about the customer base as well. If you think about traditional uh, LATAM uh, users as a whole, um, you're thinking more around the underbanked or unbanked. And so obviously this brings a whole new perspective to that as well. So it'd be interesting to uh, track the, how they progress in the future, really. And I see that they're looking to expand in Mexico and Argentina with plans to commence operations in both countries over the coming months. So that whole Latin American uh, expansion seems set. Yeah. Again, uh, I've not seen any wording or phrasing around underbanked or unbanked at the moment, but um, I've got a feeling it's going to be uh, something along those lines soon. And what do you think, Lois? I mean, uh, how old's Nationwide? It's been around for a bit. Uh, uh, a couple of hundred years. I only think, a couple yeah. of hundred yeah. years. Oh, are you starting to feel like uh, like an underperformer <laughs> against these new players? Starting to feel old. <laughs> um, no, I think it's interesting. I think Tencent backing Newbank is particularly interesting mm. because of the. I think WeChat and WeChat Pay are like setting the tone for disintermediating financial services putting them in interesting customer journeys. For me, I think that's the future of financial services. So I'm interested at Newbank raising the money. I think they were backed by a huge US um, private equity firm, weren't they? So they must be bullish on <laughs> on Newbank. But if I was betting, which I'm not, um, I'd say that Tencent are going to use their infrastructure for something interesting. Mm. It's an interesting market as well. Brazil has 55 million people that don't have access to a bank at all. Um, they're also the government, which is the point Mark made, yeah, fair. Um, but actually, historically, um, the uh, Brazil's government had uh, criticised the banks, uh, the country's banks for local uh, excessive profits uh, with uh, kind of the uh, top five banks in Brazil taking 82% of the assets that are banked. Um, so it's a very concentrated banking market, which we have seen elsewhere, uh, but they've had to sort of price discretion and not really pushed into, into the, the lower end of the market. New bank, by having a lower cost of distribution, lower cost of operation, can certainly go in there. But it makes you wonder, you know, have they been through a credit cycle? We've seen in the last 20 years, Brazil has been through a boom and bust cycle and then is coming back out of that. You know, is this? They were founded in 2013. This is always the thing that's thrown at the, these larger banks that are that are quite new. Will we see them get through the credit cycle? There's also something you you brought up there around you know the top five banks in Brazil having about 80 percent market share. There's, there's that's a strange number because we've had the US, uh, the UK, which is sort of similar. Uh, Australia has a sort of similar uh, approach. Um, that sort of how big does a bank get, and why an oligopoly? It, it, why does, does five or six banks seem to be the right kind of number for that market? It's an interesting one for me because it, it does raise that question as to, well, is there going to be a dominant fintech player in the East, in the West, in particular regions, or will we get to the same four or five banks at a, at a different size? What do we think? Greg, I wonder if it's an emergent <laughs> principle. I'm, I'm just... Um... The, the future of financial services and, and how we access them is something that fascinates me. And, and whether a fintech company gets to number six or number four, I think this is, this is the most interesting thing before it's swallowed by the number one or two, mm. right? And so do you, is it possible that in the future, in, in three, four, five, ten years, you get Nubank as number three, four, five? 
that I think is, is going to be extremely, extremely interesting. Do they have the infrastructure? Do they go through a cycle? Um, do they manage to attract the talent? Do they manage to also, you know, set themselves as, you know, this, you know, force to reckon with? Mm. Um, what's happening with the international expansion as well? You know, do they play in the Brazilian market? Do they stay number six in Brazil and, and become number whatever, seven, eight in, in, mm -hmm. in Mexico? I think all these things are very, very interesting. And when you, when you start and you're very nimble, you're able to just go very, very fast in, in a lot of markets rather than just really doubling down in your own market. And I think as Moon mentioned, there's, there is an assumption that this is about expanding into other markets, um, especially in Latin America. How many markets look like Brazil where they've come through hyperinflation and because they've had hyperinflation, they've had very high interest rates. And because they've had high interest rates, the cost of borrowing has been very high. Uh, but actually, new bank having more affordable borrowing has made them really, really popular. But also, there's uh, there's an article on Recode that uh, where, the, uh, where the founder, David Velez, told one interviewer, he remembers getting locked in uh, inside bulletproof doors a couple of times because he had... Um, guards looking at him with guns and he had his cell phone with him because the customer service at banks was sort of like their their security was will intimidate you if you and then you really better pay us back kind of vibe and it was like wow okay so the customer experience there you know wasn't like hey come to a bank get some borrowing you're the customer we're working for you and serving you helping you get to where you want to go in life it's like you better pay us back otherwise here there's the guys with the guns kind of thing yeah you, you don't want to take away the free pen from Argos do you <laughs> <laughs> that, that's taken that to another level, Mark. That's a, that's a good point. So moving on, uh, a story from AltFi. Goldman Sachs billion-dollar fintech gamble. So Goldman Sachs have revealed that they're in their Q2 earnings that they've spent £1.3 billion bringing their in-house fintech platforms to life, including Marcus and Apple Card, a new transaction banking platform, with $275 million of this spent in the first six months of 2019 alone. Year-to-date, the total pre-tax cost from Marcus, Apple Card, and their new transaction banking platform is $275 million, said uh, one of their senior execs. So as those uh, businesses scale over the coming years, uh, there's there's obviously a, an, a large amount that they're they're spending. Um, Marcus have pulled in thirty five billion dollars from savers in the UK and US alone, but it seems like they're spending a lot in order to make that happen. They're spending a lot, but I mean, one point three billion is nothing compared to legacy tech overhauls, is it? Incumbent banks spend a lot more on that, trying to keep the um, the plumbing working. So. It's a lot of money, but I think as a hedge and for the future, it actually seems relatively reasonable. I think good on them as well. Let's be fair, the brand isn't known for being innovative or customer-led or anything like that. So I think that it's actually a, a good play for them. Um, again, the numbers can be a bit eye-watering, but no, full credit for them for giving it a go. Yeah, from you know, that's that's going to be my my uh, invest previous investment banker hat talking. Mm -hmm. I was just looking, the number that I was looking at is 35 billion from savers, 35 billion in savings. Now, if you want to, if they wanted to fund that in the market, right? So they, they're funding the, the yield on, on three-year bonds for, for Goldman Sachs are around about two, two and a half percent. So if they had to fund this in the market, they'd pay around about 900 million quid a year for that. Now, if you're running this over two or three years and you put that in comparison with 1.3 billion, sounds like a pretty good deal. There's the math for you about why it makes sense to have deposits and, and then lend against those deposits as well, um, be, which now they've got a consumer-facing business. Not only can they uh, sort of 
be doing the traditional Goldman Sachs investment banking stuff. They can do the retail stuff so those deposits can be working for them uh, in, in a completely different way. It's like it's like that business model of banking made some sense, Greg. I think that's a, it's a really good point. It's also interesting that they've decided not to launch in the UK as well at the same time. I think that's obviously quite a key point that they know there's so many... Uh, neo banks there and the challenge that they've got there um, and they're probably learning from that as well rather than uh, uh, take a, an even larger punt I would say. Well the markets platform is in the UK uh, at the moment as well as the US so but but it's not that app based approach it is that uh, mobile web savings account which is the thing that that has most impressed me they didn't just suddenly say great we're going to go and make our app they just thought about how people were going to uh, address this so on, on one hand um, they've really sort of uh, disintermediated all of the retail players connecting money markets, capital markets, directly with retail customers who at the moment are only getting, what is it, five basis points or 50 basis points on their, their savings. Um, and and that's, a, that's a big spread to be able to play with if, if you can deploy $35 billion in the markets effectively. Yeah. And I assume Goldman Sachs can. Well, actually, part of that 35, well, no, actually, it was before that. But Goldman Sachs gave uh, a, a credit line, actually, to Nubank. Ah. And if you had that, 2016, 53 million. In 2017, 120 million with Fortress. So they are everywhere. everywhere. <laughs> they really are. But I, I want to come back and pick up on Lois's point a, a second ago about that. Uh, sometimes you, you would see these announcements from other banks spending billions and billions, like tens of billions, to do what they're doing today and just try and keep up with the market and serve the customers they've got with the products they've got. Goldman was in the fortunate position of not having any of that so they could just start with a blank sheet of paper. Um, And I think Jason's point is an interesting build, which is you wouldn't have expected them to go that sort of semi-traditional, semi-conservative mobile web route, but it seems to have really worked for them. And I wonder if part of that is because they've just really stripped back the consumer-facing product and not made it complex and really, really focused on doing that one thing well. They seem to have understood their customer. I don't know if, Lois, you had thoughts on on the customer approach. I think they've been really smart. I think the Apple partnership is super smart. I mean, I can imagine what we might say about that, but let's be real, for non-fintech aficionados, that's going to be exciting. Mm -hmm. They're going to get loads of customers. It's going to probably change the game. Um, And I just think that They've done the same with Marcus. They've taken a really smart approach. They haven't launched fully in the UK yet, but they've still got a quarter of a million users. Healthy numbers. Mm-hmm. Moving on. In The Telegraph, Revolut's investors predict a $10 billion valuation. Now, this seems a bit of a puff piece to me. Um, <laughs> but, uh, well, surprise, surprise. Pew, pew, shots fired. Surprise, surprise. Draper Esprit Chief Executive Simon Cook, a board member, an investor in the startup, claims that uh, Revolut is one of a clutch of European startups on track to be worth tens of billions of pounds. Alternate headline time. Uh, investor said his investment is very good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Talk your book much. Yeah. <laughs> So what do we think? Well, I think that um, Revolut is one of those great um, UK fintech stories. I think that they've they've been the darling to uh, to, to really use as a baseline going forward. Um, and it's really good news, I think, as an industry as a whole. Um, however, um, I just need to clarify something. Am I right to use the M word? It depends which M word it is. Monetize. <laughs> okay. So oh. <laughs> I'm not going to be invited back now, am I? Sorry. Um, so, so again, you had that darling figure in the industry that so much went into it. Yeah. And then at the end of it, it just really didn't happen. So 
Again, let's not count the chickens just yet, right? Let's just work out exactly where we are. Um, but yeah, I think that it's a really positive vibe. But you're right. If you're a, if you're a shareholder, you're, yeah. you're, that's the kind of statement you're going to make about your bets. Mark, I think that's a really good point. Um, and I think it's a good point because uh, you, you've got to worry about those things if you care about the health of the fintech ecosystem broadly and, and seeing the right things happen for customers. You don't want the bad news stories um, bringing, you know, being a curse on everybody's houses. But to be fair to, to Revolut, they have now 6 million customers. Uh, and I think, and I said it last week as well, I think some of their recent marketing uh, tone of voice has been phenomenally good. The stuff they did around Pride, the stuff they've done with charities, and they keep releasing features at a rate of knots. So who knows? But, but you could also argue that giving customers free money with an, <laughs> un, with an unsustainable FX rate um, is a easy, pretty easy way to, uh, you know, um. to acquire customers. Uh, and I, like, Convince me I'm wrong. Uh, well, yes, if they didn't have a plus account and the uh, other challengers that are now copying that model weren't doing the same thing. Sure. So um, there are other things that they're doing alongside that. So uh, And they're also bringing in some industry heavyweights like uh, Richard Davies from TSB, um, former boss of uh, Goldman Sachs for Europe, um, and people joining their, uh, their board as well. They're, they're beefing that out with people who know how to make money in banking. And it strikes me that a lot of these, if we step back, a lot of these fintech techs are trying to take that best of both approach. And I think Marcus, and, and Lois made this point really well a moment ago, uh, Marcus has really proven that model of like, you can do it greenfield, um, but you have to know how to do the banking bit too. And I think Revolut is getting their heads around that. They've acquired a lot of customers throughout Europe. And they've. I think they're probably, of the, the European challenges, one of the furthest aheads in terms of having some of those products in different markets that would allow them to do it. I definitely think they're ahead, but I think it's marginal. Mm. I think to Greg's point before, you, we just don't know what's going to happen yet. And there are so many of them. The landscape's crowded. Either they could get to the 10 billion valuation and they could be the darling forever, or someone else could overtake them quite quickly. I think the difference between, anecdotally, the difference between challenges in the UK, at least, is really marginal. It can depend on things like, do you need the FX? Do you travel a lot? Or do most of your friends have Monzo, so it's easy to pay them back in the bar? Yeah, I, um, I think I'm on your, I'm, I'm on your side. Um, and, oh, and your side well. controversial. <laughs> no, um, uh, I, I, see, I see Revolut as a little bit of a kind of Adyen business model, like one of those, you know, high volume, you know, uh, it's basically very low margin, high volume. And I see them hurtling down that path like very, very quickly. And I'm yet to see really where they make the money to to justify a 10 billion valuation, which was around you know the sort of stuff that you know uh, I mean 10 billion it's it's a big 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 number. I mean the the, the revenues you have to make in order to justify this is well, staggering. Barclays worth 25 billion, I think, or something yeah. like that. So, yeah. but ultimately you th- you've got to think that the investors in challenger banks are looking at the big banks or even. You know, Metro Bank, which I think was worth three billion. You know, at some, po- uh, some before point the audits are after before the audit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but but that's um, uh, but but you look at the existing banking landscape and the big players, and you say the new players are coming along; they're growing rapidly. So if they get to some kind of scale like those guys, then ten billion isn't too far off. But that's a you know a, a large established international player with. Um, yeah, billions in in uh, in assets uh, versus you know people who are coming at this from a very niche offering. Um, I, I've always thought it's it was interesting 
because, you know, in my, I guess, previous life, you look at what are the angles you can get in, into things with. And a travel card is, a, is quite a niche product. You know, you, you use it for something specific. And I see, you know, versus, I guess, N26 or Starling or Monzo, less people using Revolut sort of day to day as a, you know, even just anecdotally, like going into the tube, I think you see more of other, other cards, cards yeah, than you do, of, uh, you do with Revolut. But, but then, you know, you may turn around, we may turn around in a few years and say they really did take the right approach because they went fast to market with a, with a um, you know, a financially advantageous product. They really did a land grab. They burnt VC money to do that. They brought in these industry heavyweights then, you know, in the second, third wave in order then to turn those travel card users into all kinds of other things. Um, but it's that sort of, uh, Amazon risk approach, isn't it? Of uh, like, let's just burn VC money, get tons of customers, and we'll we'll make okay, money from them at some point. But yeah. of the major challenges, they're the only one with muscle fiber operating many markets at the moment. And there, it's interesting that they're heading to Australia before the US. Mm. Um, on, on the uh, on the back of the uh, kind of new new bank valuation, you would have thought even even Brazil increasingly becomes and, and Latin America broadly becomes an interesting one. But it strikes me, I wonder if it's go to market where we think we can win that look and feel a lot like markets we've won in before. Um, and it is that expand, expand, expand model. But behind that, I think there is a real attempt to hit profitability and, and start hitting those metrics. I think to, to that point, it is, it's a numbers-driven business. Um, and the first number they hit is user growth. But I wonder if being so numbers-driven also means that they would look for that profitability in a way that maybe others haven't had to focus on as much to date. But where does the prof profitability come from? From, right, mm. so in the case of Marcus, well, you've got a big pot of saving that you can online and you do your net interest margin, and this is this is how you make money. That's how banks make money, and with fees as well. Uh, but you know, this 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 is the business model here. They just launched today. I don't know if you've seen this um, stock trades yeah. on their metal account, right? So um, and then again, it's like free stock trades. You know, it's, but it's interesting. But you only get that if you're paying the ten pounds a month for the metal card. Exactly, but it's still free. Right, so it's they're going after the sort of like Robin Hoodie style stuff. Mm. Well, I mean, yeah. okay, fine, Robin Hood is completely free, but you know what I mean? It's one of those things where you're like yet another business model that you're opening, where it's not necessarily going to bring bring you in like millions and millions. It's going to be nice, but again, it's just it's it's these high frequency and low sort of low numbers. But it's, but that's an interesting one because I find it interesting that the the constellation of features and services that you bring together you know in in my product brain uh, sort of have to fit with a particular context uh, and one model is that you say great we're going to do financial services for everyday money and all of the things around that or discretionary spending and what's in that well peer-to-peer -peer, like um, payments so I could send money great FX because I, I travel like you know there's, there's insurance maybe around the things that I buy there's a sort of constellation that belongs together. But then there's a sort of the WeChat model of the infinite supermarket and actually just let's throw financial products all together in one space and we'll see what sticks and how it works. Um, and obviously, you know, for, for WeChat, Alipay, you know, there's that, that works phenomenally well. And yet, I guess personally, I prefer this sort of curated contextual 
like bring the journeys together around a thing. And yet for this, it's, I feel like I'm Revolut bashing today. I don't mean, it's just in a bad mood. <laughs> right, everyone's wrong. Um, but, there, but I do have an interest, a question as to how do you decide what to include and what not? Because if we're getting to individual share trading, that's really different from an FX, you know, an FX play. Which is, are you chasing numbers and growth or are you chasing a product context that's sustainable? It, it, it's a different motivation, I think, is what you're pointing at. Uh, uh, Mark, did you have thoughts on this? No, I, I'm certainly going to draw reference to, to the metro side of things again. Unless you've got the money coming in, you can't put the money out. There you go. Moving on. Story from Bloomberg and uh, and more mention of the uh, the uh, APAC. Uh, Jack Ma's two hundred and ninety billion dollar loan machine is changing Chinese banking. So my bank has lent two trillion yen. That's two hundred ninety billion dollars to nearly sixteen million small companies across its four year lifetime. I feel like suddenly we've put everything into perspective with uh, <laughs> with some uh, billion and trillions. Uh, in the uh, in the story, so what do we think about my bank? Phenomenal organisation, uh, absolutely phenomenal. It's SME lending at a truly, truly enormous scale. But the stat that stood out to me was, whilst they're lending a lot of money, it's the one percent default rate across sixteen million companies. One percent. I mean, a lot of banks would kill for that default rate. That's phenomenal. And it's. I think there is something about having scale on Greenfield, but being able to develop your data capabilities to identify the right pockets of risk in markets where people couldn't. That really stood out to me. Lois, what stood out to you on this? The same thing. I think um, often you hear the, the line of argument that you can um, you can use all the tech, you can use all the data to improve your um, affordability modelling, but ultimately it comes down to risk appetite. Mm-hmm. Well, that 1% default rate shows that those two things are not mutually exclusive. Um, the other thing that stood out to me here was the um, the controversial social credit system ah. of China and how that <laughs> sort of feeds into um, feeds into this risk model. And I'm just fascinated by that. I just think it's this moral conundrum that has so many layers of complexity. Um, I think it's okay to use those things and, and maybe that those scores are improving the credit decisioning. That's cool. But what about when that social sort of trust score starts to augment people's behaviour in China and then you have to change the model to account for how people are um, trying to game the system. Like, we're all human and interesting things are going to happen because of it. it. <laughs> it's an episode of Black Mirror, basically. That, that That's where we're at. Yes. We're at. Nosedive, isn't it? With, uh, <laughs> well, you, yeah. you've got to think that, sure, 1% default, but that 1% default then have their lives collapse around them when they can't get onto a train because now they're not allowed to travel. Mm. Um you know, is this a China-specific uh, thing, or are they just so much better at uh, at using data on the, the, this stuff? I think they're very good at you. I think it's a combination of things, right? So you've got a bunch of people that are incentivized to actually behave in the right way, simply because otherwise it's baseball bat and you know not able to take the train. Um, then the ability to really um, uh, take in all this data, work it. And then after that, spit out a, a right you know, or wrong decision. And then behind it, then you've got this formidable amount of capital, right? So you've got really like the alignment of stars, but it's relying on a bunch of things, which I'm not sure would work here. Mm. So there is an element of China and there's an element of being really, really good. And yeah. I think if you put this all together, well, you've got, you've got this story. Because if, if anything, uh, we're diverging ever more with GDPR and data and mm-hmm. privacy which are great for the end consumer, but also reduce the ability to make 
better credit decisions if you're going to be um, you know, super focused on it. And then we've got China, where basically there is no privacy and your data is you know, everyone's and this is all cross-correlated and suddenly it looks great. And maybe they get lower rates and they get much lower defaults and they end up with very different behaviours. I mean, you, I don't think you can get more divergent, can you? No. I don't. Know, I don't know that you can, and I think there's something in that lack of regulation versus regulation and the ability to create uh, far, far better targeted credit scores. I think, um, Greg, what you were pointing out is is China's almost like, on the one hand, it's the, it's like the Galapagos. Things would happen there that wouldn't happen anywhere else because it is so unique, um, and yet. Because of that, they're able to build these models that really could work somewhere else. There's this thing in the story that said there's more than 3,000 variables that allows them to get close to their borrowers. Now, if I put my old banker hat on and look at how credit risk decisions were made in banks, there weren't 3,000 and they didn't have a data set of 16 million businesses on a regular basis. It was a far lower, data, smaller data set that they had. And typically, credit risk was a committee who drew a line in the sand around certain variables. So it was human and paper process driven rather than being quite so data driven. There's a lot we can still learn from this, though, I imagine, Mark. Yeah, as, as controversial as it is, you've got to ask those 16 million whether or not they're quite happy with that system to get that that borrowing at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And at 30 cents a transaction, the, 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 the cost there to the bank, it just shows that their infrastructure's in place, they know what they're doing. Um, but it does, it does go down to the social side of things. And um, just thinking about that, and, and the episode was nosedive with uh, Bryce uh, 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 Dallas Howard that was, that was the lead there. And she was at that point where crashing out the wedding and everything else, it, yes. it, 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 went, it went horrible for her. But then I think about Say, for example, if it, went, if it went to the root of your social media and your Instagram account and not just the pictures that you're posting yourself, but in Simon's case, the amount of Simpsons memes that he used every time. So, so can, would you then I feel be like you know position? me so well, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll be back very shortly. Let's take a quick break while you hear from our sponsors. This deal sets apart. That this economy okay, is... We need to get down to business. Yeah. We need to get down to business. Yeah. Clearly, the pressure is beginning. Business in Brexit. Jobs. Brexit. 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 Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation, and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation, and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Cybos, the world's premier financial services event, is landing in London's XL on the 23rd to the 26th of September. More than 8,000 decision makers and experts from across the globe will gather to shape the future of finance, and the opportunities for fintechs will be bigger than ever. 
Specially priced fintech tickets are available. Don't miss out. Book today at cybos.com. Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. If you really love this show, don't forget to pass the podcast along. I'm not quite sure how that would work in the sort of digital setting, but, but try anyway. Tell a friend about us, share it with your friends and family, spread the fintech love. And if you really, really love us, leave us a review. Thanks to those that have done that already. We love reading them. And a special shout out to Paul the Banker, I don't think that's his real name, who left us a review over the weekend shouting out the Atom Takeover show for getting his weekend off to a flying start. There you go. What a weekend Paul had. Woo! (laughs) All right, let's get on with the show. So next up from Bloomberg, US women pay 18% more in banking fees than men. So let's unpack that. A new analysis of more than 500,000 US users on Stash, a banking and investing app, found women pay a disproportionate amount of banking penalties and overdraft fees. Male Stash users pay $182 per year in fees, while women pay $214 or 18% more. What do we think is at the heart of this one? I think education. I I think it's um, something that... that that's the bigger issue. I don't think it's about men or women or pay gap. I think that's a very tenuous link. Um, I also think that we've seen that recently. I think NatWest had a campaign uh, where they were trying to um, uh, balance the education gap with women in the UK, and it just fell on their fell on its ass because they were very condescending. It was very mm. uh, uh, ill-written. And I think there are other ways in which you can go about it. Yeah, so there's this, this study, which I, which I really like, by uh, CBR. It was in 2005, so it's been nearly 15 years ago. But they were saying that in 2025, so it's in six years from now, 60% of all the UK wealth would be held by women, and 53% of all the, the um, UK millionaires would be uh, women as well. You're, you're getting Everyone's there. Everyone's looking at me when they talk about this, so it's just making me feel good. <laughs> but like, Lois, beers but, are on you. Yeah, yeah, no, I was just 2026, thinking, so you... bring it on. Yeah. <laughs> so but, fees and penalties, oh, sorry. Yeah, no, so I was, I was going to say, so there is another report by, by Fidelity this year, uh, which is called The Power of, uh, of Women or something like this, or Financial Power of Women. And basically what they have found is what, what you were saying, which is um, that very often women do not feel confident making financial decisions about saving and securing income for the future because they do not feel, they do not feel, they understand financial products well enough. Um, And then they, uh, so it seems also that when they make the decision, it seems women uh, default approach is a cautious one. And so I think, so it goes back to the, to the education one, but it means that whenever you're doing, you know, an an investment app or financial product, et cetera, it's exceedingly important to design it in a way and to explain it in a way that not only the UI, but the way the words that you're using are so clear so that everyone and the ones who feel maybe a little bit less confident about making decisions can feel that, well, I got this, I, I understand it, and I'm not going to get caught by things that fine friends. But Greg, can it be as one-dimensional as just education and confidence? I mean, surely the pay gap is in there somewhere as, as an issue. Um, 100% as well. I mean, it's just, you know, the fact that, you know, you need to, re- to uh, retort to, you know, overdraft fee means that, you know, you, you don't do that by choice. Generally. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the fees and penalties that include late fees, charges for ATMs, minimum balances, commissions, but they found that overdraft ch- uh, charges made up the lion's share of the difference, where women in this study paid almost 30% more in overdraft fees compared with men. What do you think, Lois? 
So I have maybe a bit of a different read on this. So 80% doesn't seem like enough to set alarm bells ringing to me. It might be significant enough to to delve into it a little bit. Um, And I wondered if maybe that's the most cost-effective way of borrowing money to live the lifestyle that you want to live. Mm -hmm. Like, I've seen a lot of research studies that say that women tend to be the ones who actually manage finances in lower-income households. They're exceptional at budgeting and finding ways to live the life they need to lead. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I, I kind of agree that it's a bit of a tenuous link to say that it's an education thing. Um, I think the pay gap might play a part in that. I wonder if this might be going too far, but maybe there's something in like heterosexual cohabiting and living the same life that means that if you've got a pay gap with your partner, maybe you end up in your overdraft a little bit more, about 18% more. Yeah, it's one of those things that probably raises more questions than it answers because it says, look, there is this different, there's an overdraft thing, but it tells you no context as to who these people are, what they're using stash for. Investment, obviously. How that works, you know, whether it's single or families or, you know, whose money it is and where it works. Um, So I I guess it's one of those dangerous areas where you can start drawing massive conclusions yeah. without really knowing sort of the details it, on it. It probably tells you more about Stash's user base, as you say, than it does about the nation uh, or, 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 or macro trends. And you know, in emerging markets, uh, you tend to find that women look after money because often in, in those societies, they are far better at it consistently. In family scenarios, this is this is a common theme you see in, in developed markets as well in, in different income brackets. So this is this is, needs to be put into that context, I think. I, I think the thing, the more interesting story for me, as, it's, as it always is, is that in 2017, Americans paid $34 billion in overdraft fees. And suddenly we're back to that conversation of sort of free thing credit banking, but the minute you go over the line, then that's all of a sudden when all the fees and charges happen. And there just being something weird about that mechanic that uh, that leads people to go, oh, free, yes, I'll sign up for that, and then ending up paying $34 billion. Like, how does that work? Yeah, Jason, I think this is a point you've made um, in the All past. the time. <laughs> but, but, but I think it's no less important than the last time you made it, which is the the point you make about good landlords versus, uh, uh, sorry, bad landlords versus good waiters. Uh, I think that is is a complete mindset shift. But the other side of the argument goes, well, if we've got a lot of um, sort of challenges that are struggling for profitability, just getting rid of the fees can't be the only answer. We've got to figure out that business model side of it as well and other ways of making money. And I think a lot of that comes down to transparency and how you communicate. The, um, the, the surprise fee, the catch-you-out fee, is the worst kind of fee. The fee that you knew about, that you were told about, that you had plenty of opportunities to manage, that was communicated fairly and transparently to you, I think everybody would kind of be fine with people making money from that so long as it didn't wasn't like weird... Well, you know, to Lois's point, I don't mind paying for things that I find value in. Mm -hmm. I don't want to pay a fine um, for making a mistake. So, uh, you know, I think when businesses uh, charge me for something I value, and that could be credit because actually I just need to feed the family for the next couple of days to get to the next payday, then sure, that's a good value thing to do. When I didn't mean to do that and I you know, some payment comes out earlier and suddenly they're not charging me for the credit, they're charging me a punitive fine that then pays for everyone else's banking, then I think that's when I have the uh, the issues. 
And here ends the public service announcement <laughs> <laughs> on behalf of the, uh, I don't know, poor and needy. Right, moving on. Thin Extra. Uh, Rakuten's US banking charter application raises concerns with American banks. So Rakuten, also known as the Amazon of Japan, has resolved to establish an industrial bank in the state of Utah. The American Bankers Association isn't happy about that. Mm-hmm. It's expressed concerns about the implication of a large technology company uh, coming onto its grounds. I mean, no, a, a, obtaining a banking charter. So Rakuten's bidding to enter the banking space via an ILC charter, sidestepping more rigorous bank holding company requirements while guarantee, getting guaranteed FDIC insurance on deposits. What do we think? Surprised that a Japanese company has tried to get it in the US. I think that's the, the first thing that, that sprung to myself to, uh, uh, to, to break that market rather than their own market and vice versa with Amazon as well. So why, why aren't they trying to do more in that space as well, seeing as it's a popular thing to do? Mark, that's what stood out to me is, is I think part of the reason some of the banks are pushing back so hard on this is not because of Rakuten and, and whatever Rakuten are trying to do in, in Utah. We covered a couple of weeks ago, Utah is, uh, I think, it's alongside uh, Arizona, really trying to become a hub of fintech and really trying to open up to it. Uh, and Greg, you'll see this in, in a lot of your work as well, I'm sure. Um, but uh, the pushback around uh, you know, urging the FDIC to regular, rigorously review every aspect of the application, <laughs> keeping in mind the broad commercial rather than financial nature of their business and significant other questions that that raises, Amazon, 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 <laughs> Amazon, Amazon. Like, you can sort of see that this, this is like them, the banks drawing a battle line somewhere else. Yeah, Mark, I think that's a really good point. It's poking the bear, isn't it? That's it. I guess it's interesting looking at that uh, sort of license arbitrage thing as well. Mm. I mean, you know, European con- uh, countries, suddenly something sets up in Malta or some, some, someone sets up in Lithuania and you've got uh, people saying, well, great, let's, let's get banking licenses on a European setup and we can draw fintech here. And the US is by size, much more like, you know, a Europe in terms of each state having that kind of uh, setup, in which case setting yourself up to be the, well, if we're a little uh, friendlier on our licensing, then, you know, we can dr- uh, bring jobs here, we can bring investment here, suddenly we've got all of these people with a ton of money to spend locally. Um, I guess it, it draws something interesting about how state and federal licensing, you know, plays there. It really does. And Greg, you, you do lots of trips to the States with UK lots. fintech. Uh, lots and lots of trips. I mean, are you seeing that UK fintechs could follow this path? Are you seeing much from the big techs to, to look towards those licenses? Any free trips to Utah you want to uh, disclose? <laughs> uh, not that I can disclose. Um, no, I think it's, I think it's really, really interesting. Uh, what is also really interesting is that what we see and what I know of, um, and I'm not going to quote names, is I have heard of, fintech companies playing that arbitrage games, that arbitrage game here, and um, actively taking advantage of the fact that um, American regulators hate each other between themselves. They don't speak to each other. They compete with each other. And so if you have understood this, if you have you know, a legal uh, counsel that walks you through all of that, you're able to actually find really good deals and ways to get into the market that are very efficient and where, you know, of course, you're going to make a few, you know, not enemies, but, you know, a few raise a few frowns, but at the same time, you're going to get to what you want uh, a lot quicker. And it's all about finding finding these things. But a bunch of regulators are a little bit friendlier. Definitely Utah and Arizona are making a big, big push. I think the problem there is more of a 
what do you find when you land there? Mm-hmm. Um, and what are these states good for? Um, and I think that, you know, uh, if you want to have some support there, if you want some call centers, et cetera, I think Arizona makes a really strong point for that. Um, otherwise, it's just, you know, the, simply the demographic and the, you know, the, 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 the talent there is not particularly the one that it's you got to be a place people want to live and that's yeah. why the coasts have done well in the u.s but even cities like austin has done well uh you know places that that have uh, a lot of that going on i think that's, that's a really good point i mean lois do you think there's something to be said for big techs generally um getting banking licenses do you see that as a realistic threat anytime soon or do you think there's something preventing them i don't know if banking licenses are the issue i think this story in particular reads like a bit of good old-fashioned American protectionism. So there's probably Mm -hmm. not much there. But, I mean, Apple, Amazon, they're already participating in banking services, to quote um, the American Bankers Association guy. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's... I don't think the licences are the problem. I think they're just a bit of a scapegoat. The one thing that I've never understood, though, is why... And I know that Google have done it. They've applied to be an AISB in Ireland, I think. Mm -hmm. But if you're Google, what you're doing all day is registering intent. Basically, people look for stuff, so it's intent, right? But you're not registering action, which is when I pay for stuff. Mm-hmm. This is the reason why you still get served ads for, you know, barbecue stuff when you look for one fork because you've lost one in the, in the last season, you know? Yeah. So, it's like I bought that thing already. Stop showing me the ad. Exactly, right? So by doing an, an AISB, all of a sudden you show, you have action and you can close the, the redemption whole loop. loop. Yeah. And so I'm, I was wondering why, I'm just still wondering why they're not doing it more. Why are they not pushing that a lot more? Because you don't really need, you don't need heavy regulation for this. You don't need to have a banking license, right? Just well, we'll see, because I mean, I think the ASP thing is, is just getting started. But in the US market in particular, coming back to Utah, funnily enough, you've got, a company, you've got companies, of course, like Plaid, who aren't in Utah. Um, but you've also got MX Data, who do a lot of work based in Utah. Um, so probably is the beginning of a, of a fintech Utah story that, that, that does have a link. And MX Data are all really good at sort of categorizing all of that data and information. Um, so if you are a Google and you want to get your hands on more than just here are the transactions, but but also some of the stuff around it and make sense of it, uh, they, they can do bits and pieces of that. Although I imagine Google are pretty good with data, um, but getting those roots in to get at that underlying data in the US could be could be something that Rakuten proves possible that then sort of really starts to change the model. And it'd be interesting from an Amazon perspective who know that you made the purchase on their platform, but they don't know about the purchases you make off their platform. Uh, and I'm with you on the Google side of things. You know, if you think they're, you know, mission in life is to organize the world's information for, I don't know, the good of everyone or whatever the sentence is, then financial information is a big part of that. And sure, I use Google Maps, so they help me get to places. I use Gmail and they organize my um, my documents in Google Drive and it's all searchable and it's great. It's not too far off to say, well, who would be a, you know, who would be good at helping me manage my finances and them spread over everywhere? Uh, and if it's some crazy uh clever google service um do they have the the trust uh in the, the from the general population to allow them to do that and if it's paid for by better targeted ads you know is that a viable um, approach uh, because we know actually quite a lot of people will uh sac- well you know want to use a free service uh 
you know, that's ad supported. We're not really seeing that so much in financial services. Everyone sort of shied away from that for, to a big extent. But it seems that AISP, the, the account information service provider, the PSD2 sort of banking API thing that means that I can give Google access to see my accounts and even to transact if I give them that, that capability, um, uh, it, it is an interesting area that you think, uh, I would imagine, is within their mission statement. And you've got to think that they've got teams working on that kind of thing, no? Yeah, as, as a mega company as well, trust uh, unfortunately, we're going to go back to Facebook again, aren't we? After the uh, Analytica side oh, of things, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Where's the bingo? I didn't. I didn't hear a ding. Um, and I think that getting those consumers that are probably testing the waters to see where or not those services and those massive mega corporations can help in them in that way um it's taken us back i really do think it's taken us back a good five years to build that trust back up again so it'll be interesting to see what happens going forward so moving on there's a story in the ft that the london stock exchange is in talks to buy refinitiv for 27 billion dollars the LSE, the London Stock Exchange Group, has confirmed that it's in advanced talks to buy Refinitiv uh, that could turn it into a global exchange and data powerhouse. The acquisition of Refinitiv, I think Laura's put it in the show notes just so I, ha- I have to say this like 25 <laughs> times, it, um, it would transform the LSE into a main rival of Bloomberg's financial news and data empire with an annual combined revenue of more than £6 billion. We spoke to Virginie O'Shea, Research Director, Institutional Securities and Investments Practice at ITE, uh, to tell us more about the possible repercussions and potential for LSE, a result of this deal. Let's hear from her now. As many people in the industry have pointed out, uh, there's obviously a huge data services angle to the acquisition or the potential acquisition of Refinitiv by the London Stock Exchange Group. I'd say there are other assets that are also in play here. The the ex-Thompson Reuters business has a lot of platforms around FX, so FX all and the likes. So there's a a strong play there that will have a big impact in terms of the merger overall, especially if you think about LSE having LCH on the clearing front. So FX clearing is obviously quite big news for the capital markets at the moment. In terms of the major challenges I feel they'll face, obviously the first one uh, is receiving regulatory approval for the merger. Um, The European Commission has been uh, fairly wary of uh, large, possibly anti-competitive vendors, uh, obviously on the market data front as well. So it would be the largest data provider headquartered in Europe should the merger go ahead. So this is something that you'll have to think about. Obviously, Brexit may complicate this whole process too. So um, the FCA and the European Commission will have a a big impact on on the future of this potential deal. And uh, thinking about the enterprise business, there would have to be Chinese walls and a separate unit um, set up to to make sure that the LSE isn't getting insights into its competitors, uh, the exchange's uh, information. So that's another thing to factor into it. Obviously, um, there are a lot of changes in in the market overall, and and I think this is in keeping with a lot of the acquisitions that exchanges have been making. 
uh, a lot of tie-ups, uh, if you think about NASDAQ buying smarts uh, within the uh, realm of um, financial crime, uh, there are a lot of financial crime assets within Refinitiv that you, the LSE could benefit from, particularly tying it up with Univista, and that would make a big difference. Uh, they do a lot of things around tax and risk that would be very useful um, to the vendor, combined vendor overall. So I think when it comes to um, potential, there is a lot there. So what do we think? This really stood out to me um, because it's just massive in the financial markets space, Greg. I mean, um, LSE, everybody's heard of them, but they probably don't realize all the things they do behind the scenes as a clearinghouse. And Refinitiv, of course, um, spun out of um, Thomson Reuters in a deal with Blackstone. Um, and they're now sort of uh, in this other position of they were just sort of paying off all of their debts have been carved out, uh, and now they're being acquired again. So this is a business that's moving around. Um, this sort of makes a massive amount of sense if I look at it from an LSE perspective, like they needed that data play. And even in financial markets, uh, increasingly the data about the transaction is becoming more valuable than the ability to just create the marketplace for the transaction or clear the transaction. And this puts LSE squarely in that in that space. No, absolutely. So exact same thing I can't, I can't agree more um the two things that stood out to me really is the timing of it um sorry you, you agree with no, it. So, yeah we're all we're all in agreement sorry it's almost... <laughs> right well after i've agreed with simon yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um and so so the first thing is is the timing right mm-hmm. timing i think is is super interesting um you you know, Virginia's already said the B word, right? So Brexit, what's going to happen there? Mm-hmm. You know, LSE being in a, in, a, in a position of thinking, well, where where are the flows going to come from now? And is our position a bit... For Euro clearing, is exactly. Deutsche Bolz going to take all of that? Exactly, right. So all of a sudden, they, put, they, they find themselves in a position of thinking probably, hold on a minute, you know, the future looks a bit dangerous potentially. What are we going to do? And then they bring this, this data deal. And then again, so exactly as you said, for financial market now, everyone wants to have more data. Everyone, it's just data is really the name of the game here. If you're able to enrich real services with you know useful data for your clients and and um, and provide also lateral services, I think it's just a fantastic thing, provided it goes through. Chris, did you have any thoughts on this one? Um, I will agree with Greg, who agrees with Simon, <laughs> and say that I think the, the data play is the most interesting thing for me. I think the potential for partnerships and um, really interesting innovative uses of data in financial services in Europe is super exciting. Refinitiv are a big provider of um, financial crime prevention tools and anti-money laundering tools and data sets um, set against the context of being a large FX clearing house, having one of the major aggregators now brought in as well. So not just the anti-money laundering tools, but FX all one of the major aggregation platforms in FX. Um, there are, you know, there have been recently in the news uh, a number of the U- U- UK banks were fined for rigging the foreign exchange market. So if there were an organisation that had some tools that allowed them to provide uh, aggregation services to their to their uh, corporates and to the institutions. Uh, that they were discoverable through, that also had really nice uh, kind of capabilities on the back end. Uh, LSE could be could be very well placed in that context. I'm going to disagree with Simon, um, basically just because I'm in a contrary mood today. Yeah. Now I've got to think of a reason why I disagree <laughs> with you. Um, I think the most interesting part of this story is vertical integration. 
because across different financial services players now, we're seeing uh, this platformification of people doing things, people providing intelligent services. And some players are playing at a specific layer. It was Thomson Reuters. They were against Bloomberg. They were kind of in the same place doing the same thing. But now, no, yeah. But now vertical integration of, of people buying other components starts to make it, I, I think, interesting in that respect. I think when people say we're competing with Bloomberg, I don't know if you, you know, you've been in the bank, sure. you've been Terminals. in the bank, it just, I mean, no, you're not. the genius of it <laughs> yeah. is just, you're absolutely not. Yeah, it, it, Refinitiv <laughs> does some quite different things and some quite powerful things. Damn, showing my ignorance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, it's all right. I agree with everyone. Yeah, it's all right. I, I appreciate the contrary. It's, it's all right. It's it's your nature, Jason. We love you for it anyway. Um, did nobody else get as well, of course, that this was an excuse to mention the new CEO of uh, of LSE Group? I'll let you do it, Mark. No, it was, it, I was only going to bring it back to Brexit. I'm surprised that we not picked up more on that because obviously if Brexit happens the way it could potentially happen, um, there, there's the change of guard at the Bank of England um, and the FCA. So that, that could have an impact there. Um, and then Reuters becoming back to a UK firm if we leave Europe. How would that throw a spanner in the works? You're going you're gonna to have a, a major firm back as a UK territory. So I think that I wonder, though, if there's something strategic about LSE doing that, knowing it's based here. Um, it, this is this is a very interesting move for, for that reason. Um, and, of course, the, the CEO, uh, the former Goldman Sachs banker, David Schwimmer, not that David Schwimmer. Pivot. Uh, uh, <laughs> has, has done something really, really quite interesting here. I just have to say that. Um, skill. Yeah. But you said about data as well, and I think that's what Greg mentioned earlier. It's not just data, it's the quality of the data. So as, as much yeah. as we're always going to lead with uh, an AI or a machine learning view, data is only as good as the quality of it in a, at, the, at the back end. So looking forward to what happens here, it'd be, uh, it'd be interesting. And we're heading into Cybos as well, as as you probably heard, listeners, on, on the adverts. So going into Cybos is going to be an interesting one this year, based in London. It is. Unfortunately, it's in the Excel centre, which is soulless. But there you go. Oh, but, but we're going to bring the life to the party. So it's all okay, oh, Mark. It's an aircraft hangar in the middle of nowhere. Oh. Sometimes they do Comic-Cons. They? <laughs> they do. They do. I, yeah. Comic-Con Cybos would be fantastic. <laughs> a good actually. mix. Wow, mashup conference. Can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> like, you could go as your favourite financial superhero. <laughs> Love it. Mm. I, I would do that. What, can we who is your favourite? Can we, can, we can we talk to Cybos and say, like, can we have Comic-Con at the same time? Only if you have the subline of not every hero wears capes. Nice. Oh, <laughs> yes. There we go. So, finally... <laughs> And for those outside of the UK, this is going to mean nothing to you. For those inside the UK, it's going to be mildly interesting. Uh, BBC News, Noel Edmonds reaches compensation deal with Lloyds over the scam. So there's this guy, Noel Edmonds, British TV star, Mr. Blobby. Blobby, blobby, blobby. Again, people in, in Europe or the US, Sorry, this, this is going to mean nothing. But anyway, everyone else. Right, so he, there's a scam involving staff at the Reading branch, which apparently uh, involved high-end prostitutes, luxury holidays, and lots of money for the, the staff there. Um, and uh, uh, this was to do with uh, HBOS, which was subsequently bought by Lloyd's. And uh, Noel Edmonds, this famous TV star, basically his his production company went bankrupt, his business unique group and because he's such a high profile client uh, he really took this on he um, Lloyd's rescued HBOS at the height of the financial crisis and this scandal about the Reading branch has has just haunted them since basically because 
Noel Edmonds is a TV star in the UK. So a statement from Lloyds on behalf of both parties said, Mr Edmonds and Lloyds Banking Group have reached an agreement in this dispute and they'll continue to support the ongoing police investigation matters. What do we think? I mean, there's there's a serious point here, which we should probably uh, address, which is that kind of, uh, there were a lot of, small businesses that appear to be treated this way by a number of banks. Um, you know, famously, uh, RBS had the, the controversy around its GRG, Global Restructuring Group. Um, it seems to, it's a real shame that uh, more of this appears to be coming out. Um, but, uh, you know, there's there's just, it, sometimes it takes a celebrity champion and a cause to, to really do something with it. Irrespective if you had a dislike for the man, because I think he was quite a, a, a Marmite character, I think yeah. that's fair to say. Um, I think that Alan Partridge called him a total wazzock in his book, which, again, may be unfair. But you've got to remember that this man was suicidal. Okay, yeah. it, it took him to the point. So it goes to show that mental health is, is a major thing, irrespective of your position in, in society. Um, and, yeah, someone should be really responsible for, for that as well. I think that it's quite an important part. I do like that he de- set up a dedicated radio station called Positively Noel to troll Lloyds Bank and get his uh, case for compensation. That that just that makes this story. Um, and he would play things like Abba's Money, 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 <laughs> um, Eurythmics, Would I Lie to You, and Destiny's Child Survivor on the playlist. That's the agonizing one, isn't Interspersed it? Interspersed with anti-banking messages mocking Lloyd's adverts and appeals for anyone who has similar experiences to get in touch. Wow. I mean, that sounds like a radio station of somebody that's absolutely okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't wish to make light of ill mental health, but that radio station bit on its own is quite funny. Um, but that, yes, I'm treading a fine line here. <laughs> <laughs> so, that wraps up this week's show. Thanks so much to all of our guests. Where can people find out more about you? Lois. You can find me on Twitter at Lois Ollerenshaw. Mark. Uh, you can find me on Twitter in Frammers or LinkedIn and read more about my firm Finastra at Finastra.com. Perfect. Greg. And since everyone is saying uh, where to find themselves on Twitter, I'm at Greg Fintech. Uh, so it's like a cool oh, version. Greg Fintech. Yeah. That, that's, that's the uh, Fintech superhero I can believe in. <laughs> there, there, there's your side. I actually character. brought my cape. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that's where to find me. Uh, you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter. Uh, and let's have a chat about all things Fintech. And as for me, um, hopefully in a less contrarian mood, you can find me at Jason Bates. What do you think of today's stories? Let us know on Twitter at Fintech Insiders or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Periscope, basically everywhere. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>